0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com.
2: Season two of Meet and Three is almost here. We're kicking off with a show all about football.
1: I am excited. so much fun.
2: (laughs) We'll tell you how to master the tailgating scene with help from some Atlanta chefs.
0: The sky's the limit when it comes to tailgating. Yeah, do something that you, you can pull off without stressing yourself too much.
2: Then we'll look at what's good and bad about players' diets whether they're an NFL star or just made the JV team at their high school. And that's when I was told the first time, well, just take them to McDonald's and feed feed Big Macs and milkshakes.
0: There's a greater percentage of guys that have a a clear focus on what they're putting in their body.
2: You know, in SEC school, people are fans, but... We also have to realize that they're kids. They're 18 to 22, 23-year-olds. Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when Season 2 drops.
3: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week... I interview someone in the food world on their journey to success, their challenges along the way, to figure out what it is that we can learn from them and share with them. Today, my guest is a very successful San Francisco restaurateur and chef, and most recently, she has added cookbook author to all that, along with her husband. We're going to be talking today about love, food, and money, which is almost as good as love, sex, and money. It, some people might think it's better than love, sex, and money. Although I don't, I don't think I know those people. But um, so, welcome Sarah Rich from Rich Table in San Francisco. So happy to have you here in the studio with me. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So I'm going to start out by talking about flirting. Sure. Yeah, flirting is a um, it's a good topic. It's actually now almost a toxic topic yes. in the workplace, but back in the day, mm-hmm. flirting wasn't a bad thing. And it is the beginning of your love story with your now
2: husband, Evan.
3: So all that flirting worked out well. What's your point of view on flirting?
2: Well, I, I do think to some extent it is a very natural part of the experience. I mean, at least it was, um, in my time coming up as a line cook. Um, you know, it's a very, uh, high stress, um, very intense environment and it is an easy way to blow off a little steam and have a little fun. So tell me, you were working at Boulet at the time yes, which uh, was an
3: extraordinary restaurant with an extraordinary chef, very um, brainy, detailed, yes. um, delicious ahead of its time food. Mm-hmm. And uh, you
2: were in charge in some way. Mm-hmm. what were, what were you doing at Boulet? Um, so, when I started out, I was an extern. I was going to the French Culinary Institute, and I was going a couple of nights a week after class. And um, when I graduated, I ended up being offered a position, and I started out in Garmanger, and then moved over to the fish station, and um, eventually was the chef de partie of the fish station. And that is the time when um, Evan, my now-husband, started working. (laughs) And what was Evan doing when he got there? Well, he originally started at the Danube, which was next door. It was Boulay's Austrian restaurant. Evan wanted to work at Boulay, but there wasn't space. But they did have space at the Danube, but only in the pastry department. So originally, he started in the pastry department. And he worked uh, with—the chef was Austrian, and his sous-chef was German— and they would just speak German to each other all day. So everybody just sort of assumed that Evan was German.
3: <laughs> um, he also wasn't
2: talking. No, as I he understand. wasn't talking. He just kept his head down. As you do, you're taught, you know, just keep your head down and work. Don't talk. Don't strike up a conversation unless you're spoken to. So we just all assumed that he was German or Austrian. Um, Until one day, our now business partner, Jonathan Gilbert, went up to him and was like, where are you from? (laughs) Slowly, distinctly. Yes. (laughs) I'm from Jersey. (laughs) And that changed everything.
3: (laughs) So, um, you know, what was that first spark? Like, was it the way he, you know, rolled the dough? Was it... Because I, I, like, chef's hands can be quite extraordinary. It's
2: true. I think, you know, of course there was, I thought he was really cute. But also, I think there was something to that, you know, focus, keeping his head down. You You know, I respected that approach to his work. And I think, you know, that can be sort of a turn on in its own way. So.
3: I think that's right. It's it's sort of like a nerdy girl version of cute. You know, it's not like well, he was the one who was left standing at the end of the night. It's like no, no, he was like
2: quiet and focused, and a hard worker, a a hard worker. You know, trying very hard, and you know that made an impression on me for sure. So you guys worked um,
3: together for a while, although separately. Mm -hmm. I I love the story about how you were absolutely discouraged from even talking to each other. Yes,
2: it made for a very interesting work experience.
3: So you, we were given different shifts and
2: yeah. So when we first started dating, it's not like we put it out there. We just, you know, we would just meet up if we had the night, the same night off. Um, And then at some point the chef de cuisine found out, I sort of told him kind of jokingly, not really thinking it would be a big deal. And he immediately put the kibosh on that. He was not having it. He freaked out and was like, Chef Boulay would be so angry. He doesn't want these things happening in his kitchen, which, I mean, now as a business owner, I kind of understand that perspective.
3: I'm curious how you do feel about it, uh, you know, yeah. right, right now, because you have, how many people are in your kitchen right now? Or Oh,
2: so, something like 20 yes. or so. Um, and we do have, you know, we at the time when I was working at Boulay, I was one of the only women, but, you know, not so in our kitchen. We have a lot of women that, you know, go through our doors. Um Yeah, it is different as once you become the owner, there are a lot of things that you see that, you know, when you were a young cook, you didn't understand why this rule was in place or this policy was in place. And now as a business owner, you're like, okay, yes, because you have to protect yourself and you have to protect your employees. employees,
3: right? That the line
2: crossing can yes. be bad. Yes. Um, so,
3: but there was the beautiful love story happened, yes. and indeed, um, even different schedules and yes. shifts. we made could it. Not you know, you- we
2: we made it work, and that has been a theme in our lives since then. You know, you find a way.
3: That's so true when I think about your crazy schedules now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could be nothing compared to,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
3: back in the day, at least you're, you're married now.
2: Yeah, <laughs> you're just... I mean, it, it, it's actually true that all of those things have helped us to to understand, you know, our place now and what it takes to, to follow your dream and, and do what you love. You know, at the time when we were just dating, it would require, you know, Evan would come home. At the end of his shift, he would go all the way from Tribeca to my apartment in Queens. So he wouldn't get there until like three in the morning. I would wake up at three in the morning just so we could spend some time together. And then, you know, I would leave at 6 a.m. to get to Tribeca by 7, 7 30 for my morning shift. And that, you know, that's what you did. And so now, I don't mean to be insensitive, but when we have cooks who are like, I have to have my day off with my girlfriend or my boyfriend, I'm like, What are you talking about? Talking to somebody who never had a day off. Like Evan and I didn't have a consistent specific day off together until we were actually already married, you know, and moved to California. So Did you ever
3: think like, I'm not sure I know you well enough to, you know, because we don't actually spend a lot of time together?
2: Right. Well, we worked it's At true. the same time, and yeah. that's how you can really learn who yeah. a person is,
3: right? That's sure. some people have the travel test. Like if uh-huh. I can travel to Europe with them or Botswana, I'm yes. sure I can marry them. And yes. you're like, if I can work with them, I'm pretty sure I can be married to yes. him. Yes, yeah. <laughs>
2: absolutely.
3: And so you took a really big risk because yes. you um, you left New York, mm-hmm. and um, you had a, a you were choosing between West Coast cities. It seems mm-hmm. like you were shopping. It, you weren't exactly, you know, like. Amazon, but right. Uh, and you ended you chose San Francisco. yeah. but it sounded like it was really hard. You guys were really broke
2: it was it was really hard. It was, you know, we had been married for about three months. And right right about the time that we were about to get married, I just sort of said, it, you know, I'd been living in New York for eight years. Evan is from out here. He grew up in New Jersey, born in Queens, and his whole family has stayed here. I mean, like his aunts and uncles and cousins either live in Queens or Connecticut or, you know, this is where they are. And my family is not like that. Um, I grew up in Texas and Louisiana and my parents lived in Utah for a while. You know, they got around and my sister is out in L.A. And I just knew that I, I didn't want to spend forever in New York. And I knew we were getting married at some point. We'd start a family. We'd want to build a restaurant. And all of that is permanence. You know, you kind of, once you've got all that, you're sort of staying where you are. And I wanted to explore a little bit. So I convinced Evan to take a chance and we decided to put everything we owned in storage. We bought one-way tickets to LA and we said, let's, you know, let's try to figure out a place to live. We'll give it a year. If we hate it, we can always move back. And I mean, it was hard for a lot of reasons. Evan Evan took a chance, but, it, you know, he didn't necessarily want to.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Um, his How did you fa-
3: convince him? Like, what, what is the way to, you know, show someone the other point of view well enough right. that they sacrifice their own point of view?
2: Well, I think I said all that. You know, before I'd met him, the furthest west he'd ever been was Chicago. Um, and I took him out. Before, we got married in Santa Fe. My parents were living in Santa Fe. At the time, and you know, I took him out there. We went on a long drive. We drove through the Grand Canyon. We saw this, you know, part of the country that he'd never seen. And I think it sparked something that he sort of wanted to explore a little bit. He wanted, and he's a risk taker. You know, he if he weren't, we would never have opened our restaurants.
3: Um, Maybe you wouldn't be together. I think you said that your parents aren't really risk takers.
2: Not like Mm -hmm. not in that way. You know, like they wouldn't. I mean, they've taken risks. You know, in the sense of moving to a place they didn't know, but they would never open a small business on their own, you know?
3: What do you think gave you that confidence um, that you could open a small business or the vision in your own mind, which had been, you know, really seeded there since uh, you went to culinary school
2: yeah, I, to I, do this? Yeah, I think I'd always sort of wanted to open a restaurant. Even when I was little, I, I used to beg, my dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse, and I would beg them, to leave their jobs and open a restaurant. I just wanted my dad to be the chef and my mom to run the front of the house and I would be a the, you know the waitress and How do you even
3: come up with that dream as a child?
2: I don't know. I just I always loved the experience of going to restaurants and I and I loved, you know, you know the hospitality of it and I love, you know, people always ask, what do you love about cooking? And some people love like Evan loves the adrenaline of it. I love sharing. You know, I love I know it's a very feminine way to put it, but I love creating something and then sharing it with people and watching them experience it.
3: So what type of restaurants did you go to when you were growing up?
2: Um, You know, restaurants were usually like a special treat. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, now we go to restaurants all the time, but when I was growing up, it was definitely a special treat, like um, somebody's birthday or graduation or... Um, And I grew up in small towns. I grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana and Lubbock, Texas, where I went to high school. So it's not like we had a lot of really, you know, interesting places to choose from. But there was usually, you know, one fancy French restaurant or something like that, that um, that would be the special place that we would choose to go on those occasions. It's always interesting to
3: me because, you know, depending on the, the food that you eat, Mm-hmm. um as you grow up it shapes what you think the possibilities are mm-hmm. you know and and you've um your possibilities are so much grander and more open mm-hmm. from going to culinary school coming east and then bringing it west um do you did you develop a palette like do you love you know barbecue is there something that oh, for sure you, you hold on to from
2: oh for sure all all of that stuff i mean i You know, I couldn't eat like that every day, especially now as I get older. But, yeah, all of those things. I mean, that's why, you know, at at our new restaurant, R.T. Rotisserie, we have a fried chicken sandwich. On the weekends, we do fried chickens because I grew up with my grandmother. We would go to her farm in Texas and, you know, the Saturday afternoon meal would be her fried chicken. And then we'd sit on the back porch and, you know, churn her lemon ice cream in the old school, you know, salt ice ice cream Mm churner. So things like that, you know, definitely still are very special to me and are flavors that I look for, you know.
3: That sounds, it sounds so romantic. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people that I know and a lot of people who are in this business who had a family who, you know, were on farms, ran farms and this next generation that's, you know, I wonder what that shift will be like when people don't have that memory. And the memories going to restaurants—it's actually much more foodie than it was. But mm-hmm. it's not about where food came from. Yeah. I think that'll be a really interesting switch. So you—you you guys um, chose San Francisco, but your stuff was yes. back east. Yes, and you had nothing with you. Yeah, well, plus no money. Tell me about that.
2: Well, so we—my brother was living in um, Mountain View, which is south of San Francisco on the peninsula. It's about 45 minutes south. Um, and he was living in a small apartment at the time with his wife and they had a two year old and his wife was about eight months pregnant. So we were staying with him sleeping on his couch and we would pay them back by, you know, cooking dinner for them every night, um, And that's pretty
3: good payback. actually. Yeah. yeah, I gotta say. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Personal chef. Sure. You could have a room. Exactly. It worked out pretty well for them. But then we eventually once we decided to stay um, in the Bay Area, we found a place to live in San Francisco. We headed up there. We found a place in the mission. Um, And I guess it just didn't occur to me that it would take forever for the for our stuff to arrive. So I called the moving company. And they're (laughs) like, okay, yeah, we'll be there in about a month. So we had a month oh to figure out, you know, still living out of our suitcases. Yeah. We were on a fourth floor walk-up and all we had was a an air mattress. That we, you know, we had no money at this time. We had negative money. We had had to borrow money from our parents in order to, you know, figure out, like, when we were driving up and down the coast of California and Oregon and going up to Seattle, trying to figure out where we wanted to live, we were sleeping in rest stops because we didn't want to pay 50 bucks for a a motel for the night. You know, we had nothing. So we scrounged. How does that feel?
3: Like, is there something freeing about it? It's like, or is it just terrifying?
2: it's both. Yeah. You know, it is kind of I think a, I think a lot of people w- when they are in that age in their 20s, they they do these things that or, you know, they have these experiences. I know my parents did, I know my hmm. my grandparents did. Really? That I I think they kind of
3: What did your parents and grandparents do? That's so interesting.
2: Well, they, you know, I know like so when I would have these tough times and think about how broke we were? And are we ever going to be able to make and you know, rub two pennies together and be able to live somewhere outside of a tiny apartment and an air mattress? And I'd call my dad and sort of talk to him about it. I remember he sent me this letter that, you know, was encouraging. And I know this is a hard time and you'll get through this and you're gonna, you know, you're gonna figure out your path. And he was like, your grandparents, when they first started dating and they met like an elementary school in South Dakota. Oh my God. And they were, That's amazing. Yeah. And he was like, when they first started dating, they would s- save all week up a dime. Then they would go to Sears and their date was, they would just walk around Sears and like window shop and just look at things. And then they would go take that dime to the ice cream shop and buy an ice cream. And that was their date. You know, and by the time they passed away, they you know they weren't like wealthy, but they had made a life for themselves. My my grandfather had his own body shop. Mm. Like they they had found success, and I I really I still think about that today. That you know, you, people can have these moments that are really trying, but that's how you sort of find who you are, and you will get through it.
3: Uh, Yes, I wonder whether people who um, glide through ever find the same sort of satisfaction that people who just didn't glide through can have.
2: And that's why, you know, getting back to I never want to seem like I don't I don't have empathy towards, you know, the 20 year old young line cook who's struggling and working hard and has a small paycheck and, you know but it's like this is the time in your life to do that this is when you're grinding and this is when you're building that character and building that experience you know
3: and what about eating on the road like or eating on so little money uh it you know your choices are so limited
2: yes well we did um i would i don't know that it's the best advice but we did definitely (laughs) pull out the credit card Uh (laughs) to charge some stuff you know because i mean that is part of the experience and trying to figure out where we wanted to live and places we might want to work and you know what the culinary scene was like wherever we were looking whether it be portland or seattle or san francisco so we would find restaurants that we had heard about or read about and try them out and sort of that's, but that's where the credit card came in.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and did you, I mean, did you choose your location in part because of the Beacon restaurants or because of the scene? Like, it just seems, you know that you're going to, f- your goal, I would imagine, is to find a place to fit in, be different. Right. But be surrounded by right. um, colleagues who are interesting and
2: Yeah. I mean, I think any of those, like the main cities we went to, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, any of them could have been the right city. And in fact, we loved Portland. We, Uh we had a really hard time deciding between Portland and uh, San Francisco. We actually sat down and did the old school, you know, positive and negative Uh of each one and tried to narrow it down. And I think we ultimately decided that San Francisco had the most potential and the most, we could do more, you know, Portland still seemed a little isolated Mm -hmm. to us. Um, and do, you think you know.
3: the, do you think that list thing makes sense? And if you've done it once in your life, like, do you, have you done it for other things? Yeah, does it work out? I
2: think it does make sense. However, I also think that a lot of times you already know what the answer is and you're going to find a way To make that the answer no matter what. So you may (laughs) you may look at the pros and cons and there are actually more cons, but you've already made that decision for yourself that you want to go for it anyway. So Mm -hmm. you're gonna do it anyway. Right. It's
3: a weighted list. Yes. Like, well there's only four things on this side, but they're each worth twenty five points. Right. And all those things on the other side, they're only worth one point apiece. Right. In that mental math, that crazy Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge Gilmore Girls fan Mm -hmm. and um you know, Rory was all about the lists and I love a good list too, but I agree that you know, you do know.
2: Yeah.
3: I mean you and if you don't know then you probably should even just throw the whole thing out, start yeah. again, like if yeah. you truly have no idea. Yeah. Nothing seems sort of natural. Um but you also ate I mean I feel like there was fast food involved.
2: Oh, I'm sure there was, yes. But and I'm,
3: I'm wondering because it's it's hard as a person who loves food to like go down that road.
2: Yes. Well luckily on the West Coast we do have things like in and out, so you yeah. can find you can find some, some okay stuff there.
3: <laughs> That's funny. And um and then you began a Rich Table mm-hmm. as a series of pop-ups. Mm-hmm. Were were you at the just the beginning wave of pop-ups? Because I think you were, yes. right? It's not yeah. a thing that people were doing. How did you even have that idea? Because it really wasn't so out there.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess it was out there enough that we knew enough to try it. But it wasn't so much that, you know, there, there became a point where just everyone was doing a pop-up every week. You know, every week. Every restaurant was, you know... Somebody was showing up to do something, and, and it wasn't quite that, that big of a thing, but it was enough that we knew that it could be a way to, you know, get people to know who we are, because, you know, you can open a restaurant, but if people don't, if they can't connect you to something, they're not necessarily going to come, and just saying that you worked at X restaurant and Y restaurant isn't necessarily enough. Um, and so we thought it was important to at least get San Francisco to sort of understand who our names, what our names were. Um, and so we found a couple of restaurants that, you know, they had one night a week that they were closed and they, you know, were open to the idea of of letting us take over their kitchen for the night. So that's what we did.
3: And was that um, an immediate success and people found you? And
2: Yeah, it did. It actually went pretty well. We had a couple of friends who were in, the PR field who we were able to sort of use their help to kind of, you know, send the word out to this person or that person. So there were a few press people that showed up, which is really, you know, really important and really great that that happened. And sometimes in the moment, you don't realize how, how powerful that is, or how lucky you are to be able to make that happen. But it definitely helped for sure.
3: So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the uh the restaurant rich table we're going to talk about this amazing beautiful book same name <laughs> no confusion there and um and being a mom a wife and making choices that maybe you didn't expect to make it all work so stay with us i'll be right back
1: Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk, combined with expertise in affinage, is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com.
3: Welcome back. This is your host, Dana Cowan. You're listening to Speaking Broadly. And my guest today is Sarah Rich from Rich Table. So we've been talking about her journey to opening this restaurant, which involved a, a lot of taking a lot of risks, falling in, in love in an unusual, well, maybe not such an unusual situation, but um, falling in love and with someone trying to keep them apart. Uh, but now we get to... Uh, I think that's all the good part, because that's how you figured out where you are today. Yes. But what a wonderful place you're in right now. So you you did a bunch of pop-ups, but then you opened this restaurant. I was looking at your Kickstarter campaign, which is still there. I
2: know, it is. Which is it? kind
3: of cool, you know, <laughs> that you can look at something that was from, I think it was 2012? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, you wanted to raise $15,000, mm-hmm. and you raised like $16,324. So did that Kickstarter campaign, like, was that icing on the cake? Or did you actually start no. with like $16,000? No. Oh,
2: my God, okay. no. I'm kidding. We, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, we'd be talking about more. Uh, yeah. No, we had, we had gotten some funding, but then we needed, you know, at the last minute, there's always like, some electrical work that you didn't anticipate or, you know, this contractor charged a little bit more for whatever. And so we needed a little bit extra money. But it was also, to be honest, it was, you know, we just had a small group of investors, very, only a couple, but we had a lot of friends and family that wanted to be able to contribute something, but they, you know, they couldn't necessarily contribute a huge amount or they didn't know how to contribute. So, you know, we needed that money, but we also really wanted to give people an opportunity to help out in any way they and could. to be part of it, it it's yes. sort of like wedding gifts except exactly. it was opening exactly. it was exactly. opening a restaurant
3: and i've in so much of the press that i read the definition of the restaurant like mm-hmm. what is it right
2: It's hard. It is hard. You know,
3: so many people have one sentence. It's like it's a Japanese izakaya with, uh, you know, whatever. There's a lot of easy ways to define things. And I feel like you guys never reverted to that. And I wonder, was that a struggle? And what are your seven words now?
2: So when we first were putting together the restaurant and when we were, you know, pitching it to people or else we were already, you know, about to open and you talk to the various publications and people want to know what kind of restaurant, what kind of restaurant? That's the first question. And we were always like, I don't, I don't know. You that's not like, like for, we don't have a concept.
3: Right. For press people, we hate that. I we're know. like, why are they talking to us? They don't even know what their restaurant not, Yeah. Is. People
2: did not like it at all. Yeah. Um, but we didn't. We didn't have a concept. We were just like, I don't know, it's a good food restaurant. So, You know, trust us. So, you know, eventually we just started saying, I don't know. We go to the market, we see what's good, and we cook it. And it, that has been our motto ever since. That's and that it. And that's enough for people. Yeah. And I think what it did was people, you know, on the one hand, it made it more difficult because people didn't really know what they were getting themselves into. But on the other hand, it has really let the restaurant sort of evolve and define itself on its own. So that, you know, people, you know, all we wanted people to do was trust us, come in and just experience it. And that's what they do now. You know, they are comfortable with the idea that they don't necessarily know what they're going to get. And not, I don't mean that like in an intimidating or overwhelming way. They know that it's going to be a good meal. They know it's going to be sort of like California inspired. But they also, you know, there can be flavors from all different angles. You know, it, it's anything. Which is still not really a definition. It's not. I mean, uh, the
3: notion of having a community, and it's the food community, too, because the food community loves Rich Table, Mm -hmm. I mean, among them, but we love things in boxes. right? And um, to just be that open, you're so right. Because when I look at, you know, the menu today or the recipes in the book versus the Couple of meals that I had, mm-hmm. um, and the things that were signature dishes and really mm-hmm. important at the time. The porcini donuts are the porcini donuts mm-hmm. still on the. Oh yeah, yeah, they have to be right. <laughs> there's a couple of things that probably cannot move. Yes, but there's been a lot of shaping and reshaping. Yeah, so I'm interested in this notion. Um, I'm actually interested in, in every sphere, but how does the restaurant become its truest self? Where, you know, it's what you want, but it's also feedback from the. Guests. Right.
2: Well, that is really important. And that is something that we definitely not just struggled with, but also made something that was really important to us is, and I think I think more chefs should do it. You know, you, you have to listen to the guest on some level. You have to appreciate the feedback. But so you, what, what
3: have they suggested to you that you're like, God, that's not really what I wanted to
2: do, but I'll keep doing it for you or else you know well so when we first opened the menu was the same structure you know we've got the bites appetizers pasta entree but the way that it was meant to be ordered the way you were meant to to eat was you know all the portions were a little bit smaller than they are now and you were meant to sort of have your own tasting menu so you'd kind of order one thing from each section and then experience like a tasting menu without kind of the S- pump. Yeah, exactly. And that didn't people didn't get it at all. And you know, that was that was a point where we could have said no. That's how the menu is designed. That's the expectation. We're not changing this. But, you know, we listened to them. We realized like the smaller portions, it it just something was not connecting. So we, um, we changed. We don't do that anymore. Bigger portions, a little more expensive because they're bigger portions. But now people just order however they want. And it's completely changed the dynamic and people, nobody has a problem with it. And it totally works.
3: So when you opened, were you, because your uh, culinary background is so strong, right? We talked about Boulet. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about uh, Moss Farmhouse, which you opened, or Michael Mina, for whom you worked. And you have... A really deep, deep resume. When you opened, were you and Evan cooking side by side?
2: Mm-hmm. When, well, when we first opened, we worked on the menu—you know, the culinary side of the, the savory side of the menu together. Um, and I also did the desserts because everywhere I've ever worked, I've worked pastry for a little bit. Um, just because I, from my perspective, it makes you more well-rounded. You have more to draw from. Um, and you so think that's important. I think it's really important. And why is that important? I, I mean, the more you can, the more you understand about cooking, the more you know what to draw from. You know, the, there is a the lot of crossover
3: in your food, though, isn't there? In the yeah. rich table food. Yeah, I for mean, there's sure. There's a lot of fruit in the savory. There's, mm-hmm. um, there's also a lot of experimentation.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, I think all of those, like, I think savory can work well in in a sweet application. I think sweet can work well in a savory application, you know, if you do it right, if you have the right balance. Um, but so when we opened rich table, I, I did the desserts as well. And then, you know, as time moved on, it just, the schedule considering, you know, we have to, we had one child at the time. Now we have two. It was just more, it, it worked better with my schedule to exclusively do the pastries. So I started doing that.
3: And I feel like you gave something up. Yeah. Do you feel like you gave something up?
2: Yeah, that was definitely... um, It was a very challenging time to, 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 to do that. Because, you know, when you are a woman cook, people always assume you're in pastry. I mean, everybody always wanted to know if I was the pastry cook or, like, the hostess no, I'm a line cook. I'm a, I'm cook. I'm, you know, and so it has nothing like, there's nothing against pastry and women in pastry, but it was very important for me that people understood I wasn't the pastry cook. Um, and then to suddenly be the pastry cook, I mean, that was hard and it was a hard, um, it was definitely hard, you know, with my relationship with Evan because, you know, then now we're in this sort of classic role of the guy is the chef and the wife is the pastry chef and that was very frustrating for me and you know I don't think Evan really understood that for a while because you don't if you're not the one experiencing it it doesn't necessarily make sense to you
3: and I'm sure in some way the two of you are so bonded you create the dishes together you exchange ideas all the time Mm -hmm. but you um, you achieved so much Mm -hmm. and then it's Again, not that pastry isn't amazing, but right. it's a redefinition of self. Right, it's more that than yes. the role. So, how did you deal with sort of coming to terms with accepting that, and then hopefully, you know, feeling good about that redefining? Like, what? How did you recalibrate?
2: I fought it a lot. You did. Yeah. I did. I fought it a lot, and it, and it was. I was pretty bitter about it for a while, and it's hard because. You know, like from Evan's perspective, he's like, but your desserts are great and you're getting recognized for them and people really love them. And I remember I got, one year I got um, a Best New Chef, a uh, Best New Pastry Chef award, food and wine. And I couldn't get out of bed that day. And I, I, I know that sounds so bizarre, but I was... It wasn't that I was disappointed. I I was amazed, but I was also like, there are so many great pastry chefs who have trained for years to do this, and also, am I a? Pa- I I couldn't figure out who I was. It did. I was very thrown off by that. You know, it was this great honor, but also, I just didn't know how to take it. So it it's definitely been very hard for me. And I think I'm only just now. I mean, Rich Table is about six and a half years old. Mm-hmm. And I kind of am just now sort of comfortable with it. Because, you know, it, uh, it's okay to sort of redefine who you are and to, to create a new... I don't experience first. Sec- I don't know. I still can't even put it in words, really.
3: But I can imagine, because you, also, you had a vision from when you were little. Yeah. And you powered through it. Yes. And there was so much hard work. Yes. And the hard work was actually not in pa- in pastry. Yes. Been, and,
2: and a lot of hard work of proving yourself, right. you know, that I can I can do this just like any guy can do it. And then...
3: Did it <laughs> seem too easy, this pastry thing?
2: Like, did it feel to you unearned or...
3: I think
2: some, yeah, because I didn't, I never, you know, like I worked pastry here and there for people for a couple of months at a time. But I didn't, and even still, like if you asked me to go do some classic pastry, I I wouldn't know how to do it. I just know how to put desserts together in a way that tastes good to me or have, you know, like I like a certain texture, saltiness or, you know, I just do what I think tastes good but I don't have a lot of you know this classic training behind me.
3: Do you think that the pastry position should be um, more recognized? Pastries is in a very complex yeah. state in America at least from where I sit which is um, you have to be either a big or a you have to be a big restaurant to have pastry. Yeah, It's the first thing that gets cut in, in a downturn. Mm-hmm. You can buy so much pastry you can have someone you know it's just it's an easier thing to supplement it's a big salary or it's a salary to to pay do you feel like what do you feel about the state of pastry in america
2: i mean i think all of that is is definitely true i mean even at rich table like we've had periods here and there where we've hired people to come in and take over like especially when i had our second child like mm-hmm. we had to have somebody who came in and she you know had way more sort of classic training than i did um but I, but her desserts were also very different from from what I would do, and from I think, like they were they were great for the time, but they also weren't quite rich table. Well, it know? seems like
3: they wouldn't, they didn't have that same personality because right. don't, they don't come from the same place. The, right. the restaurant's such an integrated vision.
2: Yeah, but I, I mean, I think it is unfortunate that we we tend to not think of pastry in quite the same way that we think of savory. Um, and, and I'm as guilty of that as anybody because it is it is very challenging in its own way.
3: But why do you think, like, why is it? I mean, just we're talking about this and I'm like, wait, wait, why is that? And then because it obviously played into, well, it's a piece of the struggle that you had. Um, why isn't pastry as, I mean, I feel like I should be able to answer this question myself, but why isn't pastry afforded the same respect?
2: I don't know. I mean, maybe it's because I mean, what percentage of pastries in a in a restaurant get ordered anyway? You know, like
3: that's true. That's a hundred percent true. Yeah. Right? It's not an it's not essential to the meal.
2: Yeah, it I is guess. not something that everybody gets, and so you know, the majority of the focus is on the savory side of the menu, and the dessert is sort of like the. I mean, unless you're going in there to have. The, the pastry of some, you know, very well-recognized pastry chef. Yeah. yeah. That's one thing. But most places are not like that.
3: At Food & Wine, when we were doing Best New Pastry Chef, there were, um, there were days that I would travel around, like, a city only going for dessert, mm-hmm. which is not a really great, you know, I've done yeah. tastings of savory food that way, and it's fine doing that for dessert is, um, you know, it's a, a sugar rush of an yeah. experience. It's not quite this. It's not. It's not quite as satisfying. And also, you have to with uh, best new chefs, we would never tell anyone we were there. Yeah. With best new pastry, we feel like pastry is so um, regimented mm-hmm. that you could tell a pastry chef they can't switch their dessert. I mean, they yeah. could put an extra strawberry, but it's really different from
2: yeah. the
3: um, what happens on the savory side. So you know, we would call in advance. Go. We just want to come for dessert. We wouldn't really tell people why, and they're like really? <laughs> what kind of weird journey are you on? But okay. And everybody was you know, very kind. But um, did it ever seem like an option to have, you know, you do three days on the, on savory and Evan do three days, whatever, three days on savory. Is that I just bad for the restaurant?
2: Well, I, I also think it's hard, you know, it to, to create recipes and ideas and dishes and all of those things. I mean, for me anyway, it requires a lot of focus and attention. And so to sort of, you know, go between back and forth. And to me, it's, my mind needs to be in one place. It mm-hmm. can't be in all these different places. But it's funny you mention that because Evan and I were walking down the street yesterday. And he was like, you know, maybe when we get back... I'll go work pastry for a while and start putting some desserts on the menu. And I was like, all right, feel free. (laughs) Have fun. You're welcome to
3: my side of the kitchen. Um, Because that would be, I mean, just for the world at large, such an interesting experiment. Because the notion that, you know, to be sure that someone is there for your kids, you've reached this um, place where the whole family works really well together, which Mm -hmm. would be so interesting to, I mean, not trying to upend your life, but be interesting to to flip it. Um, so, when you and now you've got this great book, yes. That um, I guess it said so it'll launch uh, what day?
2: Uh, the eighteenth.
3: 18th, the eighteenth, 18th September eighteenth.
2: Yep. Mm-hmm.
3: And um, had you always in, had it in your heart and mind to do a book?
2: I mean, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. for sure. I mean, our house is full of cookbooks I've been buying cookbooks and borrowing my parents cookbooks for years and years and years so oh my gosh
3: what cookbook you grew up with Julia Child but what are oh, for sure what cookbooks did you grow up with
2: um my mom I mean definitely the mastering the art of French cooking both of those um Craig Claiborne and Fanny Farmer those were the ones that the that my mom used a lot
3: you had classics and then mm-hmm. um in your collection what what are your favorites
2: my favorites, I love, you know, I love Marcella Hazan's, uh, she just, anything that you make out of there is the best whatever that you can possibly make.
3: Marcella Hazan, if the, you know anyone who's listening doesn't know who she is, she um, was an Italian and her cookbooks are so authentic, they're mm-hmm. so, uh, they're really simple, mm-hmm. they're really clear, and she was a longtime contributor to food and wine. Mm-hmm. And um, she was a big chain smoker and drinker, <laughs> and which we always thought was so funny because you know her dishes are quite nuanced. Uh-huh. And her husband, Victor, would write the recipes and okay. write everything in her voice, which, again, the two of them were um, a real treat. And they they would come to town, and we would have sushi with them. So um, Marcella is a great yeah. uh, touchstone. Absolutely, for yeah. sure. Is there anything? Uh, book on which you modeled your own or anything that inspired the
2: book um I think so with our book we really wanted it to be a really pure representation of the restaurant we didn't want to put something out there that then you ate at the restaurant and you were like, what am I at the same place mm-hmm. I don't understand this and I think you know something that's fun and really interesting about our book is that it's the whole story of how we met how we fell in love how we you know took a chance and moved to the west coast everything you've been asking me about opened you know this restaurant had kids and you know everything that has happened since and so you don't just read a bunch of recipes and learn how to cook the food that we cook out of the restaurant you get to like hear a story and I think there are a lot of parts of that story that people can relate to and people maybe they haven't had the same experience but they've done something similar that they're like, Oh yeah, that's like when we decided to move to Chicago uh-huh. and you know, whatever, it doesn't even have to be work in restaurants, but
3: it's in the, um, the story is, is so relatable and the recipes are pretty intense. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I look at them and I could do a component of something. Mm-hmm. What were you thinking of in terms of, um, cause it is a beautiful re- reflection of the restaurant and actually, so, you know, some cookbooks, make me hungry, some cookbooks make me want to um, cook some cookbooks mean we want to just take them you know, to bed and never leave, <laughs> and um, and you know, there, there are elements of those three things with your book, but I have to say my, the greatest um, reaction that I had was, oh my god, I have to go back to that restaurant oh, okay. I can't believe that I, it's been a, a while since either I've been in San Francisco or I had a chance to visit the restaurant and like I have to go back because the, um the combinations of the ingredients mm-hmm. are so compelling, thoughtful, mm-hmm. but not predictable. Yeah. And um, as a cook reading it, and I'm like famously on the record for being a crappy cook, so it's okay. no, you know? It's like <laughs> um, you know, there are things in there that seemed uh, above my level, and there's mm-hmm. things that seemed like at my level. Yeah. So, what would you say for the you know, more people on the hopeless vein, which would be me, um, what should they cook from the book?
2: I mean, I think, I think you, like you said, there are definitely recipes that are more challenging. Like I think our bread recipe is probably, it takes a lot of time and you know, there, there are a couple of dessert recipes. Like I know our icebox pie recipe is, has many steps and many processes, but Um, like for the desserts, we have some panna cotta recipes or even like our olive oil cake is really simple and easy. And like, I love it all. That olive oil cake is delicious. And what makes it special? Um, well, in the book, it's because I caramelize it, so that takes it another step, and and I explain you can completely leave that out of it if you just want to make an easy cake. That works, but if you want to do something a little special, you just dip it in some sugar and caramelize it in a pan, and so it gets a little crunchy, kind of like a crème brûlée, except it's cake. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love a
3: crème brûlée cake. Mm-hmm. There, there's some um, pastries, like French pastries, that mm-hmm. seem like crème brûlée, well, not crème brûlée, but
2: like crusty, yeah,
3: um, sugary, yeah, caramelly yeah. cakes.
2: I'm really into texture. And uh, we have a lot of, I mean, Evan is as well. We sort of come from it from the same perspective. It's a really important part of what we do. And a contrasting texture or singular texture or? I think contrasting. We like to add some sort of crunch to almost everything. everything.
3: Yeah. And what's your favorite zone of crunch? Like, is it um, a crackery crunch mm-hmm. or?
2: Yeah, I think like a buttery, crackery crunch, Mm. for sure. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Interesting that when, um, in thinking about the book, you go immediately to desserts, no surprise. Yeah, But
2: (laughs) But I'm sure you had a hand in many of the the savories as well. The steak? Yeah, the steak is easy. Actually, Mm -hmm. the the green bean chimichurri with the fried shallot, that's a go-to, even to this day. Sometimes I'll raid the walk-in and take a few steaks home, and, uh, you know, with the green bean chimichurri, that's not, that's not hard to put together. And it's, uh, it's definitely delicious.
3: I feel like I could do that. Yeah. So, for sure.
2: um, you have two kids, you cook
3: every night at yes. home. Mm-hmm. I find that astonishing mm-hmm. because no chef ever has any food in the house. So mm-hmm. what food is in your house?
2: Oh, you know, we are all over the place. We, I'm not going to lie. We do have dino nuggets in our freezer. What are those? They are, um, chicken nuggets shaped like dinosaurs no way (laughs) I'm sorry because my children love them (laughs) I wish that that didn't exist um but we have all sorts of things you know we um we actually have a really neat little pizza oven in our backyard so we do that a lot um we have a lot of fruits and vegetables because it is California and that is so easy to make happen we also have a little garden in our backyard so we've got stuff that we grab from there um I love a good steak like I said um so that's
3: so that you've got so you have um these beautiful tow haired children, yes adding um motherhood that's a that's a piece of the exchange with your time, you know moving over to pastry, but when you think about um, the challenges, like the kids are in the restaurant all the time, mm-hmm. I imagine, but was it hard to accept? Motherhood. I mean, it sounds like you've had a plan for a long time. Yeah, um, uh, kids were in that plan. Yeah, Oh it, You know, it seems so. It's that part probably isn't such a um, a distraction. But the identity as mother, like, is does that? Yeah. How does that feel?
2: Yeah. I mean, you never really know until you're experiencing it yourself, and everybody's perspective will be different. But for me, um, yeah. I mean at some point it, at some point I knew I was ready to start thinking about starting a family. And you know, we eventually did. And how did you know, how'd you know it was time? I just started looking at kids and saying, I need one of those. <laughs> wow. Like it was weird. <laughs> i would never had that experience before. And then all of a sudden I would see babies and be like, yeah, I need a baby. It was just, it was just like, so visceral. Yes. Um, and you know, I remember being pregnant and, I was putting together our business plan. Evan wrote like the numbers, the spreadsheets, but I wrote the actual, you know, literature, the business plan. And I was pregnant in our tiny little apartment, putting that together and thinking about how we're going to do this. And I thought, okay, so we'll get a playpen and we'll put a playpen in the basement, in the office, and then we can just have the baby in the playpen. I'll be upstairs with Evan working the line. Like who, that is not a viable option. But I didn't know any better. I was like, I've never hung out with a baby. I thought, you just put it in, you know, it'll be fine. It can't come out. (laughs) You know, then, you know, at some point we have this kid and it's like, oh my God, no, that is not going to work. How are we going to figure this out? And when we were doing the pop-ups, I would just take, his name is Van, I would take Van with us and carry, I would have him in like a little backpack to do prep and then for service, I would have him in a baby bjorn on my front, and I would expedite, you know, and he'd be shuffling the tickets around, <laughs> and you know, this isn't working either. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it definitely changed. It changed not just how I worked, but also who I was at work, you know. It, it, I guess, kind of softened me a little bit in a way. In what way? Um, I mean, I definitely, like, when I was a cook, I had to learn how to be – a lot tougher. Do you um, think you had to? Do you think like if you did it today in
3: this circumstance, you would have to? Uh, yeah.
2: yeah, I mean I, th- I mean I don't know. it's hard to say today, I think the environment in the kitchen is not quite as hostile as it was when I was working. So if, if you put me in like our kitchen, I don't think I mean you have to be tough just to get through service mm-hmm. in general but i don't think people are as hostile and difficult in in kitchens at least in our kitchen um but yeah i definitely i mean i'm like a pretty shy quiet person when i moved to new york i had people that laughed in my face and said oh my god you're never going to make it in new york you know it's going to eat you alive and i had to fake it uh-huh. <laughs> you know i had to fake it i had to figure out how to seem tough how did you do that um, I was quiet. I put my head down and worked. Um, I tried to be just as tough as the guys around me. And sometimes that meant acting like the guys around me, for sure. You know, for every drink they took, I took a drink. You know, I, like... I'll and you hear that. about it
3: all the time. Yeah. That's amazing. To, I, I don't... You know, I'm not totally naive, but it is incredible, the expectations for everyone to behave the same way and yeah. how bad that behavior was.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure.
3: Hopefully that's changed. So softer when you came back w- with kid.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think um, I tend, I mean, I've, I'm a mom now, so I tend to have like kind of that motherly perspective towards everybody, <laughs> which is maybe not always the greatest thing, but um, that's just who I am, so. And why wouldn't it be the greatest thing? I don't know, because you know I'm the boss. Sometimes you gotta be, you gotta be the boss,
3: <laughs> right? Separate the mom, right? Yeah, All that yeah. caretaking, from. yeah.
2: But you didn't do it, yeah. So just like... Well, I have a I have a friend who's a mom and a chef, and she told me once that she never takes her kid to the restaurant because she doesn't want her employees to see that side of her. And it just never even occurred to me to be that way. But I appreciate that, and there's a part of me that thinks, oh, maybe that is a good approach. But it's you, also just not authentically me, you know what
3: do you think this so is a huge problem um, throughout the industry, uh, you know, women chefs with children mm-hmm. because of childcare, mm-hmm. um, not that they can't do the job, it's the kids, yeah, um,
2: do you have a suggestion solution for that? I mean, I wish I did. I don't know. I mean, I know what works for me it It's having a, a husband and my own business so that we can figure that out. You know, like, I, I we can work a schedule out that works for both of us so that if I want to be at, there at night, I can be at the restaurant at night. If I want to be at home, I can be at home. Um, and sometimes we can't. You know, like, right now we're traveling a lot. My parents have to come out and watch the kids, or Evan's parents have to come out and watch the kids. And So it's never perfect. Um, I honestly don't know how I would do it if I didn't have that support for sure
3: so it's something we have to work on yeah figure out the answer to that question because it's a it's a big one and um what do you see the the future you have a book you have two restaurants i keep Mm -hmm. saying rich table but there's also rt rotisserie, which i love yeah um which is you know more quick service delicious um robust food Uh, do you have other visions of things you'd want to do
2: Oh my goodness! Every chef always has a million visions. <laughs> we always want to do all sorts of things. Um, I think you know we've tried to be really smart about how we how we expand or how we progress because I think it's really easy for people to go too quick too quickly and too aggressively, and and um, we don't want to make that mistake. Um, but I do think you know, like RT rotisserie is something that we could definitely um, expand and and open. Um, more around the Bay Area or even beyond. So I think we're just now, that's a little over a year old and we're just now starting to sort of think about that. But, you know, we always have other ideas for things.
3: That'd be really, That'd be great to have one in New York. Yeah. Um, last question. Uh, I always like to pay it forward. Is there a woman in the world of food that you think that people need to know about?
2: Um, and why? I think my dear friend, Jessica Mar. She and I went to college together, and we ended up working um, at Boulay together, and she actually met her husband there. He, oh was at, he was at the Danube, and we all started dating at the same time, um, and then she worked with me at Moss Farmhouse, and then um, she and her husband now live in Austin, Texas, and they have a restaurant. They have two little boys. Um, they opened a second business a couple of years ago. It was uh, like a... Cook's shop cookbook shop they sold what's the restaurant called Lenoir okay but she is like my rock she is the I mean we talk to each other all the time and she is the one other woman in this industry that I just turn to more than anybody else for support because we have so much in common and we have you know she deals with running businesses, trying to figure out staffing, trying to figure out who's taking care of the kids. Run, like she, And she's amazing. I love that. Okay, well, with that, um, we're going to sign
3: off from speaking broadly. But I can't end this show without thanking my amazing engineer, David Tattashore, who's going on to m- bigger, I'm not going to say better, bigger, more different, things leaving me in the studio there you go (laughs) because how am I gonna live without a special effects we didn't find a special effect in the entire show I was hoping to have one (laughs) and now oh and that's his laugh and now
1: I'm taking them with me now we
3: have it forever um okay well I I hope I sound the same to all of you next week um this is Dana Cowan I have a really great week you know where to find me if you want to dm me FW Scout. Uh, on Instagram and Twitter. And if you'll want to follow you, you're a little cagey on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, but you can follow Rich Table, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Have a great week, everybody.